everyone. Welcome to Real World Parenting, tips and scripts for parents on roads less traveled. I'm Dr. Laura Anderson, a child and family psychologist, and I'm glad you're here. As you settle in to listen, let me reassure you that you are in the right place. If you're a loving parent looking for answers and encouragement, and maybe even a chuckle amidst hard things. If you're a loving parent who's raising a child on a journey different from your own as a child, and are seeking a compass as you navigate uncharted waters. This is the place for you if you get the theory of parenting advice you keep hearing, but for the love of chocolate and curry and all other nearly perfect things, that theory never quite works as planned with your actual children. Finally, you are in exactly the right place if you're a therapist or clinician who works with kids, teens, and families. My intention is that these episodes will deepen your work and change lives. So in this intro, I get two to three minutes here to boil down 30 years of work in my psychology offices and my experience as a mom in the trenches and let you know what I'll offer with this podcast. I almost called it Lessons from Our Living Rooms or Couch Conversations because my offerings will be things I have learned and keep learning from the vantage point of both my living room couch and my therapy office couch. The aim of this podcast is to offer hope, support, wisdom, and experience in community, to provide clinicians a window into what our recommendations actually mean for real families in real life. We will talk all things kid and teen related and shine a spotlight on families navigating identities related to race, gender, and adoption. We will explore common child and adolescent mental health and wellness related topics. The hope is to leave you with a greater understanding of your child's needs and a, you got this, energy. Episodes will also feature actual practical tips and answers to questions including, well, what do I say when? And well, what do I do when? So that you feel equipped to handle the day-to-day parenting puzzles we face. So pour yourself a cuppa or lace up some shoes or hide in your busy parent bathroom for a bit and join me for head and heart conversations about loving and living with children walking past less often traveled. Have I mentioned I'm glad you're here? I trust that you'll be glad. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Real World Parenting. Uh, It is my honor and pleasure to have with me dear friend, Beth Wheeler, who's with us today. And she and I are really going to have a deep dive conversation into whiteness and the work of whiteness, the anti-racist work of whiteness that we need to be doing and and broadly kind of what what gets in the way of that. There's been so much energy and attention um, long overdue. Let me start right there by saying long overdue. Recently, there are more conversations holding us more and more accountable. And I hope today is is one of those conversations. So thank you for joining, Beth. I'm so glad you're here. It's so great to see you, Laura, and be with you. Yeah. Well, tell people a little bit about what what brings us to this place. Why are why are you um, you know open and willing and and here to have this talk with me? How does your life and your work bring you to this place? Well, I mean, you and I met many many years ago at an adoption camp for parents raising children of color. So I'm an adoptive parent, and I have two black domestically adopted boys. And um, so in that process and going through that camp, packed camp, 
it really pushed me as a white parent to start developing more muscle around what it means to be white, what it means to be white in the world, and to look at my own anti-racist lens also through looking at my own being white instead of solely looking through, for example, what it's like for my kids who are brown and black um, or what it might be like for people of color. I really realized that while not um, needing to center whiteness, it was also really important to pay attention to what I mean by my own being white and where I come from in terms of my racial identity. So that began the process. And over that time and over the time of raising my children, it's it's kind of catapulted me as a psychotherapist and also um, a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant. It's kind of catapulted me more into doing more race work and working around um, issues of whiteness. And I work a lot with white people and white parents who are raising kids of color um, to really look at what does it mean to be white and anti-racist and how do we kind of move through our own blockages so that we can make progress. Those are, those are, I mean, it's right. So it's lived experience, it's work experience, it's training. It's all kind of wrapped up into one. And I think you started right off in a in a key place around so often when we think about learning about race and racism, the instinct for institutions and a lot of white people has been like, well, let's study the other. Let's learn about black culture. Let's learn about Indian culture. Let's learn about all the varieties of Latin cultures. And and there's very little emphasis on like, how does whiteness shape our worldview, our communication styles, our, our family relationships, our, and, and, and there isn't a monolithic whiteness. There's not one version of whiteness, but we don't even look at the different versions of whiteness in our work. And so what, what are you finding are some of the hardest parts about sitting with white people who come into spaces saying, I want to get this writer. I want to learn. I want to know what I need to know. What are some of the, the stumbling blocks for white folks who are already, by the way, showing up to say, this is important to me. I want to figure this out. Where do you see people stumble? Well, I mean, I think the first step is certainly something was, which was one of my own first steps, which was exactly what you're saying, which is moving away from, let me learn about the experience of people of color. Let me learn about the different other and actually let me look at myself and let me look at myself through a racial lens, which means I have to look at being white. And for so many people, even just saying that they're white feels like they're not supposed to say that. Right. And it's like they're saying a bad word or something. I think that's the first step for people who haven't even delved into wanting to look at this work yet is to begin the process by saying, hi, I'm Beth, I identify as white. And the next step is to depersonalize it in the sense of we've grown up in a white supremacist culture that has trained us, all of us, irregardless of our racial identity, to abide by the values and the belief systems of white supremacy. For those of us who identify as white or are white adjacent, meaning we look very white presenting, we benefit from all of those systems. And so I think for me, what helped me was beginning to go, oh, 
Right. I grew up in a system that trained me to think a certain way. Because I think one of the major blockages that people have, white people in particular, is that we think, well, but I'm a good person. So I'm not racist because I'm a good person. And it's not about whether we're good people or not. It's not personal. The reality is we're raised in a system that has had us benefit from this dominant position. And the more we realize that, the more we can start trying to unpack it without having it be some kind of moral value system that says we are good or bad. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that clear explanation of the systemic pieces of this. How do you, and, and, and just to tease out that point a little bit more, because our, our broader dominant white-led culture struggles with the word racism as it is and, and racist as it is, right? So many of these events that happen, somebody will say something flagrantly prejudicial and racist, and then the conversation very quickly boils down to, are they a racist, yes or no, number one. So we're already struggling with this idea that it isn't individual, it isn't personal, or it doesn't stop at individual responsibility, it isn't personal. Tell me, though, define for me white supremacy. I want people to, like, a lot of people are going to raise right up in their seats around this idea that white supremacy isn't the Ku Klux Klan members in a small group somewhere. Like, how do you define white supremacy in a way people, um, you know, hopefully are sitting in their seats and, and taking in? Well, has, as I look at it, white supremacy is the, is the belief, whether it's conscious or not, that's the key part that white people are superior or that white people, it's the myth of meritocracy, that if you work hard enough, um, you will be able to succeed. And white supremacy is the reality that the laws and the systems and the institutions that have been created in our country have been made for and by white people. Therefore, uh, the access that's given and the privilege that's given to people with white or light skin um, have uh, have been given to us from being born into the skin that we're in. And therefore, because of that, um, we have been able to gain access and privilege and success in ways that other people with darker skin have not been able to because the systems weren't created for them to succeed. Um, And mostly that's because the laws were created Um, with literally, uh, you'd get more, if you were deemed white by the powers that be, you would get land access, for example, or you would get access to a bank account, or you would get access to a certain area of the state to live in as time moved on, or you'd have access to education. And so all of that would then lead to institutional success and then success in the country. So I think of white supremacy as not the Ku Klux Klan only. That's certainly what I viewed it as when I first was learning about all this. Um, And I said, well, that's not me. I'm not that. So therefore, I'm not connected to white supremacy. But it's really, to me, how I look at it as as a whole values and legal standpoint. Thank you for that. What So what happens, we're going to talk in a little bit about what happens to white people once they do start learning about this, living in it, because... There are times and ways in which living in trying to do anti-racist work means that white people challenge each other around these things, right? Like it's 
there's there's a couple of of layers to the process. It seems the first is sort of as you said, like I mean, it's not crystal clear cut, but looking at the other, wanting to learn, being motivated. Then you recognize that like, oh, wait, I'm half of this equation and I'm the half of this equation that has had all of this institutional power. You know, people will say to me, but it's but things are equal now, but everybody has a you know fair share. And not only is that not true that it's fair now, but, you know, one of the metaphors that has that meant a lot to me when I was first learning was this concept of a race. And if you, you know, hold somebody back for the first several hundred years and then even in theory, set them equally free at that point, you, <laughs> they're the, you're not running the same race at that point in time. It's a very different race. So for those folks out here who are, are, are still pained by or upset about the reality that, that, that this America in particular, but places around the world, the United States of America in particular, and the places around the world are, are, woefully unjust still how how did you deal was it painful for you as you started to discover this stuff was it painful for you and how did you handle that yeah I think that um it was very painful you know Janet Helms talks a lot she's great and she talks about um white racial identity development and there are racial identity developments for almost every single racial plat identity that exists and, you know, let's just start at the very beginning, right? Race is a social construct. We didn't even start there. So the first step is to realize that race is a social construct and that because it's a social construct, within that are hierarchies that get created. And because there are hierarchies that get created, then there are those that have more power than other people. And because of that, and because it was created um, to benefit white people, Obviously, in that hierarchy, then white people would be at the top. And then what that means is that the normative culture gets, gets defined as um, anything that might be white or white behaving or white presenting. And so I grew up, obviously, not aware of this whatsoever. And um, I didn't understand that what I was growing up in was, was quote, the norm. Yeah. And that somehow there were other people that weren't growing up with that. So when I began to interact with, and I lived in an integrated um, neighborhood in Ohio growing up, it was one of the first racially integrated areas for schools in the country, Shaker Heights, Ohio. And um, so I grew up in a very diverse area and um, that just became my norm. But then we moved to Massachusetts when I was 10. And when we did that, I lived in an all white neighborhood. I went to a private school, which my dad taught at. So we were able to go for free. And um, there were so few people of color. I was so confused. I didn't understand where I was. And all that to say, I began to realize that there was this whole world that was intertwined both with race and with class where um, there was a, a moneyed elite that I hadn't quite noticed before. And I didn't know what to do with that because I hadn't grown up in Ohio with that. I'm going off a little bit on a tangent here, but I would say that um, that was the first time I noticed color was really honestly when I was in an all white environment because I had come out of a very diverse environment. 
And I would say that when I really started looking into looking at race, um, much more so, and not just from an intellectual standpoint, but more from a lived experience was when I adopted or was thinking about adopting. What's helped me is that this developmental stages, these developmental stages of beginning to learn about who you are and about the injustices, that part of what happened for me was a classic guilty feeling. I must be a bad person because, you know, my people have hurt Black people and not not even to mention Indigenous peoples, which came later. Um, but I think that I, the, the piece of beginning to learn the reality of what has happened for so many people that I had never learned and feeling so stupid that I didn't know it and embarrassed, but also guilty that I got the privilege of being able to access things that other people didn't just because I was born into the skin that I was in. And then I became so aware that I just hated white people and didn't want to be around them at all because I just felt like to associate with other white people meant that I had to admit that I was part of it. I kind of felt like I had some awareness and I knew what I was talking about, but I didn't know how to intervene when I found things offensive. So I, it's like I had information, but I didn't know how to utilize it in a way that might not offend somebody. So I was afraid. And I think fear, like as you talked at the very beginning, what gets in the way of white people doing this work? I think it's fear. Well, Number and you one. and you just you mapped out though. I was sitting here madly taking notes on the other side. You went from I felt stupid, I felt embarrassed, I felt guilty, I felt some hatred, I felt a little paralyzed because I was unsure what to do, and I felt fear. Like, mm-hmm. well, so and I and I want to be really clear, and I know you would echo this very loudly. This conversation is not for folks to then, you know, pity us poor white people, oh, poor white people right. for having all those uncomfortable feelings, as much as it is to identify for white people with white people. That's what that kaleidoscope of uncomfortable, painful feelings is exactly why we walk away, why we give up, why we turn away, why we take the easier path, why we, right. why we, we want to be comfortable. Get, we want to be in what's familiar to us. Yeah. And that's a human, that's a broader, it's, I mean, I don't know about you in your work, but in my work as a, somebody in this field, like avoiding discomfort is probably the number one thing that keeps people in my office. To be honest, I always say like avoiding uncomfortable feelings is what, is what does this thing. So, mm-hmm. so there's a humanness to not wanting to walk toward what is hurtful and uncomfortable. And yet especially for folks who are in parenting relationships with kids of white folks who are in parenting relationships with kids of color, we don't, we signed up for this. Like they need us to have all these feelings, experience them, feel them, live with them, do something imperfect, but different. Otherwise they're going to end up carrying what they're already navigating in the world as black and brown people. Plus the unfinished work we didn't do around these uncomfortable feelings. Correct. And I also think that, you know, once I got to the point of going, okay, I, I think I have some idea of what I need to say. I just need to take some risks and maybe mess up and say, look, I'm, I'm going to do the best I can right now. And this is what I need to say. What you just said was very offensive because of this, that, and the other thing. And then I would have to clean it up if there was a big mess afterwards. And I also did a lot of work with other white people because, and that's why I do work with white people, because I believe that we have to do work with each other 
and with people who have done more of the work ahead of us so that we can call ourselves to task on the things that we can't see, right? Some people call those blind spots if we don't want to be a disabling about it, so to speak. Right, right. You know, we need to be able to support each other to be aware that we are going to have these things we don't see. And we need to talk with each other about the hardships and what we're struggling with so that then we don't put that on the backs of brown and black people. And and then then and then we can re-engage in diverse communities and step up and step out and use our privilege for the sake of more increased racial justice. But yeah. I think that only until we work through some of those deeply personal pieces, which is why as a therapist, I think I can be of service because as a therapist, I'm used to looking deeply and supporting other people and looking deeply at themselves. And this work, I don't believe that you can do if you don't look personally at yourself. And if you don't feel it in your body and work through, you know, Resmo Menikin talks in my grandmother's hands about the role that white people need to play in looking at their own racial identity. And the body is a huge part of that. Well, and I think that so, because one of the other things that I've seen a lot. And again, to your point too, I <clears throat> learn every day. I have distinct memories about when I first began to learn about injustice and the way that I was taught directly and indirectly to think about the world. For me, I mean, I literally remember crying myself to sleep in college. Like it just can't be this way that it, it just, there's no way like what, like the carpet was yanked and, and there, and just, yeah. And I, and, and I learned it every day I step in this stuff. And I think it's funny that I even preface this next comment with that, this, because what I see from white people around this work too, is that one of, it seems to me, one of the phases that folks go through when they're first reaching out about this work or connecting with people is that they do only want to learn from people of color. They are waiting for people of color to yeah. teach them about them, uh, you know, right. about their experience so that they can see things they didn't see and they want to hear firsthand what experiences were. And while it is in very, I mean, it's critical to listen to black and brown voices as part of your understanding, it's also an incredible burden to mm -hmm. expect them to hold while you fall apart about how whiteness is hard and painful. Um, and so with your point about making like one of the big takeaways, I think when I do this work is find white people doing this work, there is space and place to absolutely listen to the experience of others to inform you and motivate you to keep finding other white people who can support and, and call out and challenge and nudge and, and be with each other. And then, as you mentioned, sort of find a space and place and reintegration reintegrating where where our voices can then be part of shifting how folks feel i mean even in grad school i remember i had a, a an advisor who was like oh you know you you should i was still in an earlier phase of stuff like why well, you do a lot of work around you know talking to white people about them like but they get so mad at me. Like that was already my experience then was mm -hmm. that literally with people around me were like, who are you? Like, what do you, do you think you know everything kind of a thing? And like mm -hmm. really like immediately assumed that I thought I was on some pedestal that, that if only they worked, they might perhaps reach the same uh, level of awakening or whatever. I'm like, no, but it, there were so many defenses that, that, that came up in the process. Where are groups of white people that you recommend? Like, what are some resources if folks are listening that they can 
tune into locally near them that you, I know there's surge standing up for racial justices in certain places. There's, yeah. do you have any other? Um, well, there's, there's a lot of podcasts out there. Um, there's, um, boy, off the top of my head. Um, I can certainly give you a yeah. bunch of resources. No That's words. not a trouble, but um, I think that, um, that's another piece that I wanted to talk about is that um, there's a lot of white people out there doing the work. And um, I also know that there are some people doing the work that aren't quite doing the work. Yeah. And I also know that there's a number, certainly when I started doing work with white people, a number of people of color were quite concerned. Like, was I going to be doing justice to the work? Yeah. And was I going to be a, a good enough person yeah. to do the work? And you know what? I hope I am. Yeah. I'm, what I have to know is that I'm doing the best that I can and that uh, I will make mistakes and I will fall into my own internalized racism and my own training that I've been brought up to believe. And the only thing I can do is then be accountable if I've, made me, if I've hurt anybody or if I've made errors. And that's what we can ask of each other. And uh, I won't ask a person of color to do the work for me. I also won't ask my kids to do that. So as an adoptive parent, part of the challenge here is that, you know, I wanted to be able to adopt. I wanted to, I wanted to have a family. And um, I did a bunch of work with my partner at the time about, you know, could we do justice to raising kids of color as white people? And, you know, in the end, we had lots of questions about it. And in the end, what we decided was, well, better that if they're going to end up with white people, <laughs> they might as well be with white people who are willing to do the work than white people who aren't willing to do the work. Yeah. And we knew we'd be willing to do the work. And I'm sure there are plenty of ways my kids, because that's what kids will do, will say, you know, hell no, these people aren't doing a good job. And I wish I was with a black family and understandable that they would want that in many ways. We There are ways in which we cannot mirror for them their experience and their lived experience. And that is not something we can pretend that we can do. Yeah. And as a white person who's parenting uh, black children, I have to come to terms with that. Like that is something I cannot give them. I can try to create environments for them. I can find people for them, but they are not living in a home with people that look like them. Yeah. And that's true. And I think you beautifully kind of lay out for me what I was thinking again in this space is, and again, not, not to only to center the hard parts to encourage people to push through them. There's an, there's an element of like one of the coffee and conversations I did that was shared a bunch was, can I get a cookie? Like the meaning, like there's this place as part of the development where white people feel like, Hey, I took a risk. Did you see that? Listen to how I was a, you know, bad A for anti-racist work today. And, and sort of like waiting for the universe and people of color and friends of color to, to like reward us for, for this thing that we did. And when that doesn't happen, when we get feedback that we did it wrong, we overstepped, we forgot to include this piece, we, all the ways you can get things wrong, you have to be willing to, to sting and then make amends and learn, right? It's like we, that fear keeps us from stepping into the sting when if every time you get stung a little bit, you learn and, and you and and you shift. So there's this, there's this like, 
but I'm, I'm doing it right. And like looking for the, for the external thumbs up, that's an even bigger whammy when you pair it with being an adoptive parent and you're, you want your kids to know that you're working, you know, hard to get this right. And they're sort of like, yeah, you know, as my one kid, my, not laughingly at the time, my child referred me to, to me as a dirty colonizer. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like secretly like, yes, you know what? You're getting mm-hmm. it. <laughs> but like, and so it's a very, I think it, it really is kind of this humbling place that is uncomfortable that those of us who are stewarded with the racial identity, a parts of the racial identity, knowing when to ask for help, recognizing mm-hmm. that you can't be everything for your kids around racial identity development, but still playing a huge role in that means that you may get more stings than you do mm-hmm. high fives. Uh, in right. And that, that's also because uh, if we're doing the good job that we need to be doing, conversations of race are frequent in the household. And therefore, conversations about being white and being black are frequent conversations so that it's not solely the kid's job to be talking about what it means to be black, right? And so I think that there are also ways, I certainly remember when my kids were little, I think I definitely, my part of what I have to admit is I definitely used raising kids of color as like a chip for being Mm anti-racist. Like I was able to get extra points, so to speak, and say, well, I, you know, or I must not be so racist because I have black children. You know, I think that, and I used to say frequently when I would meet people, like particularly people of color, and this is another developmental stage, right, of this racial identity development is like, well, my kids are black, right, as if that was going to somehow make me less racist, which isn't necessarily true. And so I no longer do that anymore because it's not, like you said, it's not about getting pat on the back. It's not about having to prove that I'm more anti-racist because I have more people of color in my life. What's going to prove that I'm more anti-racist is my behavior and how I stand up when nobody else is around and what I say and how I intervene and how I advocate for my kids and not just for my kids, but for other people too. So I, you know, I think that's another piece that plenty of white adoptive parents and and white people who are in relationships with black people can can use as a way to um, to get extra kudos, so to speak. And that's not what it's about, right? And to teach people that, that like somehow communicate instantly that there's a safety they should feel with you, or that a solidarity they that and a trust that should be felt because this is something you've taken on, right? It's this really accidentally kind of sneaky, uh, uh, very assumptive and, and challenging on the, on the receiving end of that too. I mean, I think definitely, you you know, you hear people talk about, you know, we're going to be right. We adopt because we color doesn't matter because, I mean, all of those initial things like we're going to show people that you can (laughs) live and love multiracially successfully. And they'll always think like, oh, that's such a, 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 a burden for kids uh, in order to try to, to figure out. You spoke there quickly about some, some like, so what do I do if, right? So, so if you, if you're parenting, I heard a couple of key takeaways and we've, you know, 
talking about race early, talking about race often, talking about whiteness, not just talking about black and brown people, mm -hmm. but whiteness and how it shaped what you viewed there and how it shaped the history you were taught. And you know what? I don't know the answer. Do you know I was 47 when I first heard of this famous thought leader, you know, mm -hmm. in this community? Like, what do you think that's about? Or um, there are so many opportunities and I hate to, to um, you know, I know that the this recent media coverage around Gabby Petito, for instance, um, and I full respects to her family and their loss and sadness and mm -hmm. and in uh, a number of ways. And I bring her up as an example. There are countless current events and media opportunities to say, why do you think we know so much more about this particular missing person? than we do about the hundreds and hundreds and thousands of missing indigenous women and black women. Like, what do you think it is about this particular story that captured all these headlines and, and, and like, you know, I'm thinking about something to do with the youngness, whiteness and blondness, you know, like, and just be able to have conversations about who isn't in media coverage the same way you're talking about media coverage. So using current events, talking about race, standing up so what are like if people are saying but how do i do that like wh what do i do to 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 do anti-racist work what are other things they can do well i mean i think that certainly um learning and educating yourself is one thing both in terms of um your own experience of your own racial identity and what the messages were growing up that you got um i think also so besides the self-reflection there's also um, literally learning about um, the history of indigenous and BIPOC people, BIPOC meaning black indigenous people of color, knowing facts and beginning to learn about that, hearing certain references. And instead of asking a person of color to help you understand it, go look it up on your phone. Um, going and like my kids were saying, how come we have a Black Lives Matter sign up at our house? And I said, well, because um, number one is it's a value that I hold as important. Number two, if ever there was a person of color who was walking by and they were not feeling like they were in a safe space, it's almost like a sign that says this might be a safe enough space to knock on the door and say, you'll have somebody here that will see you and be here for you if you're, if you're in trouble or if you need something. So that's another aspect. I think that there are certainly the, the age old rallies that people can get involved in and so, and groups also, educational groups. I do think that um, Leila Saad wrote um, uh, Me and White Supremacy and it's a really helpful book. It's like a workbook as well as a bunch of questions that are super helpful to go through. They have groups now that are doing some of that together. They're going through it together. Um, so I think that's another piece. I think that um, standing up and supporting Black-owned and Brown-owned businesses is another piece. Um, finding out and joining something like Surge, where the, the belief is we will support Black and Brown organizations, and if they tell us what they want us to do, we will do it. Not that it's their job to educate, but they get to be in charge yeah. of what they're doing. And we can follow and support in that kind of a way, rather than say, oh, we know what to do. We're gonna decide what's the right thing to do for brown and black people. It's like it's like the United States going into another country and deciding what's best for that country, rather than people within that country deciding what they need. 
So that's another thing I think that we can do. Um, we can also work within school systems. We can work within any institution where we work. We can suggest in the institutions where we are employed that there's more work being done on racial identity development and on the intersections among and between different identities. So it might not solely be race, it might be race and class and gender and gender identity and sexuality and sexual orientation and all of the different um, identities that exist because race is always there. It's not anything that anybody can um, hide. Yeah. It's the first thing that people see when they're walking down the street along with perceived gender. Um, and that doesn't mean that you're necessarily right about that perceived gender. Right, right. Um, but those are the first things that we see that we can't hide from, and we will be treated accordingly. So learning about implicit bias and learning about um, stereotype threat. And um, there's a book called Whistling Vivaldi, which is a really helpful book about stereotype threat. Um, Whistling Vivaldi. So, I'm just going to say Whistling Vivaldi. So that for those of you who are listening, yes, that talks about this concept of how we stereotype and how you... Uh, how it is often the work of folks of color to counter those stereotypes for their own safety, but we need to be the ones who are learning how we cue for safety and and and, right. and and paying attention to the biases that we hold, whether we want to have them or not. Right, because because many of them brain. are unconscious, right? Like relatively unconscious, and to degrees of, and the more we snap our necks away from them when they when they. Tug at us a little bit. The the longer it takes to to un, undo this, and I think it's so important for for parents in particular, transracially adoptive parents. I mean, we've talked about Pact before. I've had you know Beth and Katie and uh, on here to, to chat about stuff. It's I think it's can't say enough that another resource for folks is uh, who are transracially adoptive is Pact and other white parents doing. Um, connecting around the continued hard work around this. The community is just, you know, a great place to make mistakes and stay, get stung and learn and grow together as parents in this because, um, you know, it really, our, our children's health is so closely tied to whether or not we are doing anti-racist work in our minds, in our bodies, in our homes, and then in our communities. Because I think one of the biggest, I think it's so scary, and you highlighted this, but this is probably a great place to kind of punctuate a little bit, is the, that the, the fear, right? That, that mm -hmm. even I think, I, so I will speak for me, like by the time I um, became an adoptive parent, I had 15, almost 20 years of like, feeling as if I was dragged <laughs> through the ringer about some of the being in like placing myself as only white person in communities. Like I did a lot of anti-racist work uh, sort of in theory. Now I knew I had not arrived and was done, but I felt like I kind of had some good chops around, uh, around the hard parts of this white racial identity development stuff. And then I became a parent to a black child. And I was I was so not prepared for mm -hmm. the scope of how often race mm -hmm. would show up in what his experience of the world uh, has been and is. We've lived in different mm -hmm. types of communities and places, and there are just different challenges in each of them around helping him um, feel healthy. And, and we've highlighted this before, and I highlighted it with Katie and Beth, and I think it's important 
to, to reiterate for folks who are tuning into this. There's also that piece too that I think white uh, transracially adoptive parents um, in particular do. And I had a great interview with Mark Hagland uh, over the weekend mm. where we were talking about not tragedizing your child's story either. So Correct. how do you know is his term? Um, how like this really can't say enough how important it is that you learn about racism. You're shocked. You can't get up off the floor. I cried a lot. I, you know, fought. And then you can't you can't only stay there in your understanding of what your child's experience in the world is going to be, because it's not fair to them. And the fear gets so gripping that that if only if you're only talking about being black and brown as being the recipients of global persistent injustice, then your your child does not have a chance to learn and live and celebrate what what is thriving, what is resilience, and what is just straight up beautiful culture without thriving in the resilience pieces as well. So um, I would 100% agree with that. I think that I definitely went overboard at the beginning with uh, not wanting to mess up as a white person in yeah. terms of, uh, again, wanting to not let fear rule me. And so therefore I wanted to do the best job I could at like making sure I was introducing the hard things. And I think I went overboard and didn't introduce enough of the joy and the celebration. Mm -hmm. And over time, I think I've gotten better at saying, yes, this is true. And let's look at this. Right. And let's look at all of the amazing things. And not only also in my own, in my own bias, not only looking at athletes and not only looking at dancers and musicians, but looking at doctors and looking at lawyers and looking at people of color in leadership roles across the board. Yeah. So that I'm not just celebrating what gets celebrated in our culture uh, so readily, but also celebrating a lot of other identities and, and, uh, and jobs and ways of being in the world with people of color who are doing lots of everything. Yeah, yeah, right. So that the kids can see they can be whoever they want to be yeah. and not doesn't have to be a basketball player if they're boys and they identify as male yeah. or a football player. Yeah, no, it's it, right. It's that's what you get. I mean, and this is limiting, right? When you when you look at what representations are specifically in black American or especially for black American folks, it's rapper, athlete you know, musician of some kind or ethic. And that's just, it's not fair to anybody in the formula. And yeah, so, and I know we need to, we could talk for hours and hours, but I just really, I so appreciate, I mean, I think to me, what feels really important for folks, parents or any white person who's doing this work is that, that the way you were able to lay out like all of that, the, the, stupid, embarrassed, guilty, hateful, paralyzed and afraid as reasons to avoid this work and that we really are inviting people to stay in it because this is an us problem. It's what racism is a white people problem. We we yes. need to figure out one conversation, one afternoon, one, um, you know, all of those things you listed. That's the other thing I'm super appreciative for. You basically boil down in that like five minutes feel like a 10 pronged approach uh, to, to chipping away at this. It's a, it's an ongoing work. It's, it has to be a value that you're incorporating and that you're living by failing, stumbling, succeeding, you know, somewhere in between daily. And so I really appreciate the, the resources you offered for folks and the, and the varieties of ways they can show up because 
understanding that you need to is one thing. Knowing concrete steps to take helps make everything at least a little bit feels more doable because it can be overwhelming. So thank you for being a part of making it that laying out for folks things things to do and for staying in conversation with me and for being a part of such an amazing community that has really continued to hold hold me and kick me in the backside uh, intermittently as well as this work does. So, Well, you know, Laura, I think that um, I feel so grateful because I do think that uh, one other thing that can be so helpful is having another white anti-racist accomplice to work with. So, for example, to be able to call you up and go, I have to tell you what happened in the grocery store. This is what happened. This is what I said. What do you think? What would you have done? Mm -hmm. And to be able to do that as a fellow parent, raising a black kid and saying, this is what I did. Help me be better or challenge me in some ways or support me. Right now, I just need to cry. Right now, I actually need you to to push me right now. And so that we can keep growing with each other on behalf of our children um, and really for the sake of our children. Because if we can do this, whether we have white, black or brown children, um, if white people can start really doing this, then I think we can start making some changes in this country and challenging the systems to say, let's make this different. Let's not go with the way that we've been doing things before. Let's make changes. And, so and they I do. That's yeah, no, I think that's great. And they really, it's a great place for us to like think about it. it. Honestly, the changes start at kitchen tables. They start in your homes. Mm-hmm. They start with your yep. partners, your kids, your neighbors. Your I mean, they start your your family. there. They do. So one step every day at a time, pick yourself up, dust yourself off from the sting and know that it does make a difference. It does whether you are raising black and brown kids or not, we also need your kids at your white tables in your white homes to be having these conversations and to have parents who are doing the work and showing up as well. So we're hoping to keep growing our circle and push each other along. And I look forward to when we next cross paths. Thank you again so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Laura. Hey, everyone, just a quick note. Beth and I were chatting a little bit right after we dropped off, and there was one final takeaway that seems like a great grand finale, that one of our biggest takeaways with all the nudging and and pushing is also to sit quietly, to sit in silence and listen. Listen to the stories of people of color and believe them and use that to springboard your individual work other places. It sounds silly, but not defend, not talk over, not interrupt and question or challenge. Listen, that alone is uh, energy shifting and super powerful. So we can add that to our list of takeaways for today. All right. Well, thanks for listening today. Just a quick note here at the end to say, I am so glad you joined and I hope you are too. And if you'd like to connect with me more, come take a look at my website, www.drlauraanderson.com. There you can join my newsletter. Keep in touch and find out what is in the works. You can also join me for coffee and conversation 
uh, and Facebook at Common Cord Psychology Services. So check me out those places and I look forward to further connection. I'm glad you were here today.